Hello, I'm Gemma Charles, the Deputy Editor of Campaign, and welcome to the Campaign Podcast. So, our autumn issue is now out in print and online, and it's a beauty. Our cover feature is Campaign's much-anticipated Power 100. We selected a group of senior marketers and persuaded them to attend the Cockpit Theatre in Marylebone for a fun shoot riffing on life on the stage and behind the scenes. So, for example, we have On the Beaches Zoe Harris with a loudspeaker, Visa's Adrian Farina with a clapperboard, and Google's Nishma Rob surrounded by roses in the spotlight as a star of the stage, all beautifully shot by celebrity photographer Nick Wilson. Kicking off the illustrious list of names is an in-depth feature by our features editor Matt Barker, who takes the temperature of some of the marketers in The Hundred to find out how they plan to navigate the challenging times ahead. Also in this jam-packed edition is our annual roundup of next-gen talent, Faces to Watch, an exclusive first profile of Saatchi and Saatchi London's Chief Creative Officer, Frankie Goodwin, and a deep dive which explores how a Winter World Cup will play out from a media and creative perspective. Today we're going to talk about two more excellent magazine features on the route into advertising and the demise of the ad school, and another on which we ask whether creativity still drives business. And with the pound in free fall, it's hard to ignore what's going on outside Adland this week. We've looked at Adland's response to the mini budget, so we'll tackle this as well. Joining the campaign podcast today is Gurgit Deegan, our creativity and culture editor, and Rania Robinson, chief executive and partner of Quiet Storm, and the El Presidente of Wackel. So, um, before we dive into the magazine features, um, it's fair to say it's been quite a week politically since the unveiling of Kwesi Kwarteng's mini-budget. Well, not so many as it turned out. My mag column about the government's push for growth had to be filed ahead of this, but the lifting of the banker's bonus cap had already been floated, so I was able to include this, and it was actually a good indication of the philosophy underpinning the mini-budget. Uh, Key policy announcements for businesses include a six-month energy cap to help businesses tackle soaring prices through winter, scrapping next year's corporation tax rise from 19% to 25%, uh, removing IR35 rules to make it easier for businesses to hire contractors, uh, a reversal of the Uh, 1.25% national insurance hike rolled out in April, And there are also low tax investment zones across regions uh, to encourage growth. And changes that will affect the public include, of course, the um, energy cap for households and uh, the rather controversial scrapping of the 45% additional rate income tax band for those earning more than £150,000 a year. And then also at the other end, we've had the reduction of the basic rate of income tax from 20% to 19% and the reversal of the national insurance hike. So, like I said, uh, not very uh, mini at all, really. Uh, Rather like a full budget. Certainly, you had commentators uh, very much saying they hadn't seen something like this for for decades. So, a real moment, actually. Um, So, our media editor, Arvin Hickman, pulled together a quick roundup piece on Adland's reaction. And... um, Rania Robinson was one of the contributors and a very good contribution she gave. In fact, um, one of her lines inspired the headline to the piece, which is an uncomfortable silver lining. 
Rania, can you explain what this means? Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at um, the mini budget at face value initially, you know, there there are a number of things that I guess you could take um, as positives. As a business owner, you know, I'm a business business owner. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm you know. Um, you can look at that and go, okay, she's trying to stimulate business, which, you know, at face value, I'm, I'm talking very much at face value because when you dig deeper, you see that actually that that is kind of, she's actually in many ways having the opposite effect. But um, through things like the reduction or the abolition, I guess, of the increase in corporate tax, obviously we, we would have all felt that, um, the, redu- the kind of reduction of the energy uh, costs, which, you know, probably less less impactful for us as, as sort of it being in sort of, uh, you know, smaller businesses, but manufacturing, I guess that, you know, that would have been a, had a massive impact. Um, and then some other bits around kind of supporting invest, you know, capital investment and, and various other um, entrepreneurs, you know, support and things like that. So, yeah, when you look sort of beyond that and, and look deeper into uh, the, the, the bigger issues that, ha- that haven't been addressed, if you like, which is how we're going to tackle our rising debt and actually adding to that debt by cutting tax um, levels for for high earners who are already kind of cushioned in a, to a greater extent than the majority of the population um, and which is ultimately impacting on consumer confidence and actually market confidence and confidence across the board which is in a, in effect impacting business so from my perspective you know I'd rather pay 25 percent corporate tax on a thriving business where I can support my my staff and, and and support them through what is, you know, has been unprecedented inflation um, rather than, you know, have a reduction in tax, but actually a potentially crippling trading environment for, for businesses. Um, we are an industry that, that um, uh, relies very heavily on consumer confidence and this has done nothing to address that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that was going to be my sort of second question there. So the whole consumer confidence thing, are you feeling that it's going to sort of plunge with this? What's your What's your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're already seeing the ramifications of the decisions that have been made that are going to impact further on cost of living. So the interest rise hikes, um, people are going to feel that. Um, the fact that there is little confidence um, in in the kind of uh, a sort of repayment plan around the debt. Um, they're all things that are impacting on a number of levels that are going to further compound the cost of living crisis for the majority of people um, in the country. And of course, that you know, if if you're organised, you know, we're we're organisations that work with a kind of mainstream consumer predominantly. I mean, yes, there'll be kind of. Um, there'll be kind of businesses that operate at both ends of the spectrum, if you like, at the kind of luxury end or operate more at the kind of value end. But I think for for the most part, we're operating kind of middle out. So if you're finding that the, the middle, the big, which is actually an increasing proportion of of, of the of society now, is um, squeezed, that is the bulk of our consumers. So of course, if they're having to uh, rethink discretionary spend, that's going to impact, you know, the majority of our clients, which is going to create, you know, obviously nervousness around investment as well. So ultimately, from a long term outlook perspective, business is not going to be better off uh, for a 25 for for a reduction in corporate tax, um, or a reduction in, in energy bills, certainly not in the advertising industry anyway. And, and from what I gather in any industry, to be honest, I, I'm yet to see anyone who actually thinks this has been a decent budget. Normally, there are, you know, normally there are some people uh, that kind of can see a sort of positive outlook from it. But actually, um, even if you're even even at the super rich end, if you know, if we were looking at it, kind of their investments have just 
dropped overnight. So even they're not necessarily, I mean, I'm not that, you know, not that, you know, um, they're a group of people that we need to feel overly sort of concerned for, but, <laughs> but you know, they don't benefit. I don't actually see anybody who's actually benefiting from this budget. So, um, so it's, it's a really, oh yeah, really odd, odd, um, and very risky, uh, set of plans. Mm, indeed, indeed. And they're, they're coming under pressure, I think, to reverse some of the, um, measures, but, uh, we shall we shall see. Well, we'll hear about it next week at Tory Party conference as well. Uh, whether they're going to dig their heels in or not, I'm sure. So, um, just staying on the kind of um, in the sort of political world, you penned an open letter to Liz Truss when she was elevated to PM, um, which we had the pleasure of publishing with your um, wackle hat on, of course. Um, so, just just give us a sort of flavour of the sort of things that. Um, you want to see uh, from this government? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the big theme, and there's a number of sort of factors that come into that, is basically not supporting policies that are going to compound further the inequality um, that women face. Um, and there's a number of things that kind of leave us, I guess, that, that, that come into that. And when we talk about women, when I say women, I mean sort of women, all types, you know, all women um, uh, across the board. And things like... Um, Anything that's going to kind of impact gender pay gap, I guess our focus is very much around, you know, working women uh, within the you know, advertising and communication industry. But, you know, obviously the wider impact of that at a societal level is obviously important as well. But things that um, will basically impact workers' rights, um, that will make it even harder for women um, to kind of, you know, to equalise with, with their male counterparts. So things around flexible working, making sure that that, 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 that kind of those working policies are kind of supported. Um, things like addressing violence against women and girls. You know, we, we look very much specifically at time two from a work perspective um, that we do, you know, what we do with time two and NABs, but kind of the broader you know the broad the broader challenges there at a societal level as well so policies that are going to uh, you know create um more support for women in that area uh, women's health as well we know that's a major factor um in the workplace as well in terms of um uh, so you know anything that's going to um support women's health things like menopause um, uh, pre- you know, maternity, all, all that kind of stuff, um, and then also just the crippling cost of childcare, which is we know is, a, is a, another key driver for women in terms of taking them out of the workplace as well. So, I mean, obviously she's got some major things to kind of tackle um, in in her sort of first few months, but obviously this is something that we want to make sure doesn't get um, sidelined. Absolutely. Oh, I. I support that. I don't know if I'm allowed to be. Am I, am I allowed to support Wackle? Who knows? But I'm, I'm very much support as a woman. As a woman, then I'm very much. <laughs> we all support yeah, it. Yeah. As a woman, I'm very much supporting that. And men should too, as well. Right. Anyway. <laughs> um, right, Gurdjit, let me come to you. Um, so, obviously, you've, uh, we've had this fabulous feature on um creative the links between creativity and effectiveness it was one of the first pieces we published because we think it's such a current and urgent issue um just tell us a bit more about that feature so thank you for calling it fabulous um yeah i had a good time writing this uh, it's about the lack of long-term brand building work winning at 
award shows pretty much. Um, and we all know about Peter Field's research. He compared the gun report, which used to be a public list of all award-winning ads with the IPA's effectiveness data bank. Um, between 1996 and 2008, he found that Creatively awarded campaigns were about 12 times more efficient at increasing a brand's market share than non-awarded ones. This is research we we all um, know about. And then between 2006 and 2018, this fell to below four times as effective. And then in 2019, there were a lot of stories and work from IPA. They declared that there was a creativity is almost certainly delivering no overall efficiency advantage today. And they said there's a crisis in creative effectiveness. Wow. Um, so I spoke to Peter, um, of course, and John Evans, he's the chief customer officer at System One, and they do a lot of analysis of ads. Um, and then there were also at Photo View Industry people to get their thoughts on, you know, whether things changed since 2019. Mm. So um, what, what were some of the key findings that came out of the feature then? Well, I mean, I, I doubt this is much of a surprise for anyone, but there hasn't really been as much of a change um, since two, 2019, 18, 19. We, uh, let's not forget, there's been a global pandemic that we've all been battling um, for the past two years. So, you know, that has probably halted a few things. But um, for Peter, he said things are changing, but he said it's such a massive problem to fix. You know, it's not going to be... Um, it's not going to be done quickly. Uh, so he thinks there's still uh, a big focus on short-term gain for brands. Um, in the piece, he said, it's way too early to be popping the champagne cork and putting up the bunting. Oh, dear. <laughs> I like doing that. Uh, <laughs> maybe you could do it anyway, Jeff. <laughs> but not but not in this, not in not this, in this context. Yeah, not in this. Uh, so he's backed up by System 1's research. Which so after the the Cannes um, uh, awards this year, they found that a lot of work that's winning awards, but this is overall as well, a lot of work, work that's winning awards does well for a brand in the short term, but not long term. Um, and then there's a whole debate around whether too much uh, work at the moment is quite purposeful, and whether this is dominating award shows. So there's a few industry kind of commentators on that as well in there. Mm, so it's so many issues. So. How do you boil it down? So what what can industry actually do to improve things? Well, the main thing that came out in terms of like a conclusion for the piece was, and I hope everyone reads this after I've told them what the ending is. <laughs> um, Spoiler alert. <laughs> the, so John Evans from System One said the industry needs to reframe the conversation back to business results. The, he said, the center of gravity has moved away from is the creative going to work and deliver results to is the creative going to create change in society? So he thinks there's a, we need to rebalance the conversation there. Um, and then Peter also thinks that we should put some pressure on award shows, um, you know, and the juries, you know, what are they awarding? Why are they awarding something? And it needs to move back uh, move back to awarding creative work that builds brands, obviously. Um, and then uh, there's like a, he's, he's perhaps said training issue among young creatives in Adland as well. Um, 
he said like, young creatives need to probably understand a bit more about what a brand is and how creativity can fuel that. Um, and some of the others in the piece were kind of concerned for example, if we've got purp- a lot of purposeful work at the moment, are young people coming in and looking at that and thinking, well, that's winning awards, so we need to create more work like that. So uh, is it a bit of a, a cycle? So, yeah, it's a really interesting piece to write. I think that's a really interesting point about the purposeful versus really just commercially popularistic work resonating at awards. Um, I think it does feel a bit like... Um, that kind of more classically commercial and populist um, stuff just doesn't quite land in the same way. Um, just, yeah, you know, based on any real sort of evidence, but it, it, that's kind of what it feels like. There's a mood in the industry at the moment that, that does reflect mm. that. And is this a good thing, bad thing, or are you neutral? <laughs> no, well, I, think, I think we should celebrate really popularistic commercial work. You know, it might not be something that, you know, and I think that's 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 the challenge i think certainly even from from our perspective if we were considering what we put into an award show we would definitely think well that's we know it's worked brilliantly we know consumers love it but i just don't think it's award it's not going to be the sort of thing that wins awards that's definitely conversations we have internally it's not that we design work to win awards but we definitely um i mean i'd say haribo for example is probably one of our most commercially successful pieces of work i don't know many people who don't like that but it's never won an award and it probably would never win an award. I think that's I think that's the point that I'm trying to make. So it's sort of understanding, um, and that's a sort of slight diff- a headset shift, I think, um, in terms of what we categorise as award-winning work. Mm. Something I didn't put in the piece was that uh, I, I was speaking to some people that some of the holding companies perhaps have um incentive schemes around winning awards and that is something else that sometimes doesn't help this cycle that we're talking about yeah. no i think it's definitely a um i think also it's how we define purpose as well because yes there's a social purpose and obviously we're a brand that's all about purpose to be honest with you and we do loads of socially driven work but for us you know brand purpose can mean like for us with haribo it's just bringing moments of childlike happiness to a dull, grey world. And I think we've lost some of that sense of purpose. In, in, we, we now define purpose as changing the world mm. in a conscious way. And I, don't get me wrong, I think we have a responsibility to do stuff like that, and we do a lot of stuff like that ourselves as a, as a business. But I think purpose can, can be more than just that. It's just bringing meaning behind um, a brand and connecting with people in that way. So, yeah, I, I do definitely feel that... Um, how we look at kind of what defines an award-winning piece of work is is would be a welcome. So um, just moving on to another one of our um, magazine features. So this is the one that I'd like to talk about now uh, was penned by our features editor, Matt Barker, and it was on the sort of routes into advertising and creative education. So um, let me give you a brilliant a quote from Matt himself. So Matt writes that the days when, and I open quotes here, sharp-witted young bucks could work their way up from the post room, close quotes, are no more. And instead, the industries reliant on near-identical university graduates. So among uh, other people that he spoke to, uh, he connected with Ali Owen of Brixton Finishing School, which is approaching its fifth anniversary. 
and other ad school luminaries such as Tony Cullingham, now at BBH's The Barn, but obviously famous for um, the Watford School, and Mark Lewis of SCA on the demise of the ad school and the rise of in-agency programmes. So yeah, he covered a lot of issues. So it's a, it's a really good read. Um, so watch out for it when it, it does uh, go on a website or hopefully you have the copy of Campaign and you can read it then. Uh, so um, Rania, I know that you're really passionate about sort of increasing diversity in the industry and the roots that make uh, this possible. So um, out of interest, why don't you tell us how, how you got in? Yeah, well, I that I really could relate to the kind of postroom analogy, uh, or sorry, postroom point, not analogy, because because I guess from my perspective, I came in sort of the the female parallel to that, if you like, which was as a secretary. Um, uh, obviously, people don't have secretaries anymore, really. So a uh, bit like the postroom, there's not that kind of routine. Um, but I'll give you a bit of sort of background. So I come from you know my family very. Um, you know, very academic, if you like. My dad was a doctor, my mum was a teacher. Generally, um, you know, my sort of heritage and culture, they kind of really value professions that are classic professions like lawyers, doctors, teachers. So I never really had any kind of person in my close vicinity, if you like, that might have nudged me towards a creative career of any sort. I went to a very academic school, again, sort of encouraged by my parents um, that was didn't really support the creative um, subjects. You were, you know, quite sort of heavily distract, detracted from doing anything like that. And it, they focused more on the kind of, it was an all women's, all girls school, actually, which was, which was a, kind of a, one of the pluses about it. But it was very sort of, uh, focused around women in science education. It was, you know, towards the more cl- what would be now kind of, I guess, the STEM cl- sort of STEM subjects. But which was which is brilliant um, for women who that suited. But from my perspective, it was it's I just wasn't. So my schooling didn't really know how to guide me beyond the more classic professions, I guess, my parentage uh, as well. So I had no real connection to the creative industries other than just I loved the ads. I just used to love the ads on TV. And I used to, my mum used to say to me, like, you know, if you could, you know, recite your lessons as well as you recite these ads, you'd be doing better at school. And I actually didn't do very well at school at all. And I actually felt very disillusioned by the education system and chose not to go and do a degree because I was just, get me out of here. It's all rote learning. It's nothing I can connect with. I, you know, I find it entirely boring and I can relate, like even my kids now, uh, I can relate to that their experience of, of that as well. But so the school system, I think definitely is fundamentally flawed and actually letting a lot of young people down. Okay, Ronnie. So what charmed with you in this piece? I think quite a few aspects uh, to the piece really, I mean, it, well, it, it just spoke to me on every possible level, to be honest with you. I think like one of the the, the first sort of things that, that was raised was this kind of, uh, the, I guess, the, the reduction of the route into the industry, which historically would have been filled through things like post rooms. In my case, it was secretarial positions. Um, and I, you know, I came into the industry having come in as a secretary, and obviously very few people have secretaries now, but what it provided you uh, was an opportunity to come in and kind of graft and work your way through and kind of shine within your like 
on the job and through that position, um, as opposed to following a more classic path in, which was the sort of graduate, you know, trainee path. Um, and I think also what it really did, and I think one of the things they talked about was that actually what it created was a real kind of, it was the people that had the drive and passion and energy that rose to the top that came from those. Hustle. I think they talked about hustle. Yeah, absolutely. And that very much sort of rang true with me because you have to hustle more because you haven't got, you don't fit in the way that you're supposed to. And I, you know, I, I found that. I, I mean, I was in, a, in an agency that had a policy around to be an account man, account manager, which is a relatively sort of entry-level position. You well, three years, I think, was their minimum three years experience. But you had to have a degree and three years experience in the industry. And I, as a secretary, was trying to be, become an account manager. So I had to hustle in a way that someone who's walked in from university or had three years already, who'd have got the, the three years because they had a university degree as well. So I wouldn't have got the three years because I didn't have the degree. And I, and, I, and I couldn't. I was struggling to get, in all honesty, proving myself in, in this in agency that had a very strict policy around what they defined as someone who's, you know, the right kind of person to be doing this job. So I had to ha- hustle. You have to be persuasive. You have to, you know, be entrepreneurial. You've got to go uh, above and beyond the people you're kind of competing with, if you like. So it creates a real, well, what you see is you see those those people rise. And I think that was something that came through in the article was uh, that kind of hustle mentality. So I think for me, that really resonated. I thought, I think there was a a lot of um, discussion in the article around the school system as well. And the fact, the lack of careers advice and knowledge of the industry. And I completely, again, relate to that. I didn't come from a family environment that um, that were, you know, had connections to the creative industry. I was, not in I didn't grow up in London um and I didn't go to a school that knew what to do with people that weren't trad- like classically academic so I had no kind of way like so it took me a while to figure it out and it was a lot of sort of I stumbled across it if you like so again you know how many like the missed opportunities of, of really great talent who might not ever know that the that the industry exists for them so I thought that really resonated I've just remembered that I interviewed um Trevor and uh, this is Trevor Robinson. Um, he's the husband of Rania Robinson and also the executive creative director and partner at Quiet Store. Uh, so I interviewed him a few years ago and he he's he had a sort of similar story where like, he said that when he was at school, uh, they recommended um, the the transport system for him, didn't they? Yeah, bus, bus driver. They said, yeah, he, yeah, he asked about the creative industries and they went, he said, well, I'd want to do something maybe in fashion or something creative. And they said, oh, like, you know, you know what, you'll probably be better off going for, yeah, maybe a bus driver. So that that's what people are hearing. And to be honest, I'm interviewing people all the time that have got similar stories, you know. So it's 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 really – but what you find is those people that kind of, kind of in some ways – get past that and find another route in, which things like Bricks and Finishing School and all these other platforms are providing Create Not Hate in our case, is, you, you know, that already you've got someone who's going against the grain straight away by engaging with these programs. And, you know, so I think, and not listening to the terrible advice they got at, at all and going, actually, no, what are you talking about? I'm going to find another way in. I think straight away you're, like, if you're looking at kind of entry level, really it's about attitude and potential that's it isn't it really it's like for me it's like then they can learn on the job and I think people who've got that kind of 
exactly, I think, as it said, hustle mentality, you know, do well in this industry and also have a closer connected to the people we, we, we market to as well, a bit more connected to, to the majority of, of the country as well. Absolutely. And you, you, you kind of touched on um, create not hate um, just now. So just to, I know quite a lot about it and think it's a marvellous scheme, but um, t- tell us in your own words about its focus and um, how, yeah. how it came to be. Yeah, so Trove founded it back in 2007, actually. It was a bit before its time, really. I think the industry wasn't ready for it. But it pretty much came off the back of him wanting to, his own experiences and wanting, just feeling what a waste, you know. Like, he's had this amazing career in a brilliant industry that he's loved. He's managed to bring something, you know, some really like iconic still today, groundbreaking and iconic work to the industry from, you know, looking back on Tango and kind of more recently Haribo and some other stuff, you know, other uh, other stuff there as well, that, that it, he just felt what, like it would a waste this talent. Um, one doesn't know about, they don't know about the industry and the industry do, doesn't know about them. So he went back to his old school. Um, he just found out that some uh, kid had been stabbed at his old school. Um, so he went in basically wanting to tackle gun and knife crime quite specifically because it was a very sort of pertinent subject I guess in that moment for these for these young people and actually that you know it was something the industry's been tackling for years but actually often these these campaigns are being tackled by people that don't have the lived experience they're not really close to it so he wanted to give it to people that actually have got you know some like close connection to the subject and and the idea was for the the best ad the best idea got made basically and we we produced the ad we got the local community involved so you know casts wardrobe production, acting, all of it, the whole thing, so they could get a full kind of experience of every bit of the industry, if you like. Because for some people that's coming up with ideas, for others it might be they might really enjoy production or wardrobe or or something else. So um, and then we produced a film. Um, and we we tried to get traction back then with the industry. And the idea was that um, a number of agencies would do a similar thing and sponsor almost like a school or sponsor a program. Uh, but it just kind of didn't get the traction back then. And then obviously post-George Floyd, um, it's, you know, often these things are about timing, aren't they? And we, we reignited Create Not Hate. We were, fun- we, you know, we were funding um, the program for a while ourselves and it just became unsustainable for us. Um, but then we, re- we relaunched it as a community interest company post-George Floyd and actually got the kind of traction that we were hoping to get back in 2007 um and um and yeah and so we we've we've run a number of programs with it now um and i think probably the 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 difference i wouldn't claim in all honesty the ambition is to get young people in the industry but i wouldn't claim that we're doing that at scale in truth because actually finishing school have got that i mean you know we would you know i think there's a kind of ecosystem with with this for us it's really about campaigning and about like making it visible to the industry, making it visible to, to young people. And we do that through the work that we produce at the end of it. And, you know, work that's winning awards and, you know, um, getting massive traction socially and, and, and out in the world. So that that's probably more where that sort of upper funnel, if you like. And then we can take that through. And we work with Ali in the sense that we will put people through that, that we work, that, that come through our program into Ali's program, which is a much more, robust structured 
um, kind of educational program. Ours isn't really, but we've you know we've hired off the back of the programs we've run. We've run campaigns for stop and search with the Met Police. We've run stuff around mental health for young black boys who are massively impacted. We've done stuff more commercial stuff with John Lewis. I say commercial because it's about you know the, the thing is it's not all about you know solving social issues. It's also about solving business problems and finding opportunities and fresh thinking so we've done a load of stuff with John Lewis as well where to help develop product ideas and we, we also um, you know collaborate with School of um, Communication Arts as well so in terms of because obviously they've got that school system in a way that we don't so I think collectively we can have a lot more impact and sort of playing to our strengths. Okay so lots of food for thought there. Thank you, Gurdjit and Rania, for joining the podcast. If you would like to read the articles we've been discussing, please visit our website, campaignlive.co.uk. And details of our subscriptions are available at campaignlive.co.uk forward slash membership. And if you enjoyed this episode of the campaign podcast, please follow us, like us and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And a big thank you to our producer, Aidan Lyons from Rethink Audio and also to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. On behalf of the campaign team and on behalf of Rania, goodbye.